We came last Lord's Day to Luke chapter 2, and considering there verse 1 through 7, we were thinking about the birth of all births, that the incarnate God entered into the world. The incarnate God entered into the world. He who is the seed of the woman promised from the book of Genesis. He who is the desire of all nations. The child who is born unto us. The son who is given to us. Whose name is Wonderful Counselor. The mighty God. The everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. The one upon whose shoulders the government is. Who establishes that everlasting kingdom. That Daniel saw way back. Hundreds of years before a kingdom that would outlast all the kingdoms of this world. Well, the church for centuries, even millennia, had been waiting for the coming of this child. And last week, as we considered verse 1 through 7, in some ways it appears like an anticlimax. There's no interpretation given. The history is just stated. What happened, when it happened, and how it happened. But although it seems somewhat understated, when we properly understand it, it exceeds all of our expectations. And as a window into that, after the birth of Christ is recorded, we move a little to the outskirts of Bethlehem, and we have an angelic encounter with shepherds. And it's there we begin to see in Luke's gospel more and more of the glory of the birth of Jesus Christ. We want to look at verse 8 through 14, and we'll take in verse 15 as well. And our subject is glory to God and goodwill to men. In the first place, note here from verse 8 and 9, the shepherds. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, or we might say, behold, look carefully at this. It's a wonderful thing. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Well, here they are, these shepherds in the same country near Bethlehem, simply minding their own business, which was to care for their flocks by night. And the most amazing thing happened. Children, imagine you were these shepherds. It's a night like any other night. Maybe you're not too happy to be at work. Maybe you'd rather be somewhere else than out in the fields. And an angel appears to you in the middle of the night. And he brings to you news like you've never heard before. He tells you of the birth of the Messiah. Consider here, first of all, their social standing. Who were they? They were simply herdsmen. They abode, we're told, in the field. They didn't have marked out fields with fences the way you have here in this area so that the animals were simply put into that area and they were protected and you could go and simply sleep in your bed at night. Now, they were out on the hills 
and the shepherds had to live with them, and therefore they would sleep at night or take shelter in little tents or huts. These are simple men. They are certainly not people who have climbed high up the social ladder. Yet it is significant that God, in his eternal purpose, chose to first announce the birth of Jesus to these shepherds. He who himself would be the shepherd of Israel, the good shepherd who would give his life for the sheep, has his birth announced to literal shepherds who were abiding in the fields. It accords with many places of Scripture that tell us of Messiah's coming, like Isaiah chapter 61. What would he come to do? The one who was anointed with the Spirit of the Lord would come that he might preach the gospel unto the poor. And we noticed it in, in Luke, in our introduction to this whole series, how Luke time and again is focusing the ministry of Christ to those who were outcasts and despised and rejected, those that other people who thought too much of themselves would look at and say, sinners. Remember the criticism? Behold, he eats with publicans and sinners. Well, we get a very glimpse of this at the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he born in poverty and in a low condition, but from the very beginning, the gospel is sent forth to the common people. And we read elsewhere that the common people heard him gladly. Those who in their own position of rank, who criticized the Lord Jesus Christ, had an actual fact by their own pride shut themselves out of the kingdom of heaven. Well, what do we learn from this? Is it not encouraging to us that whether we are of high social standing or low social class, neither of those things secure to us the basis of God's favor? Indeed, many places in the Bible, the higher we climb up the ladder or the more we grow in wealth and riches, we are warned that those very things will have the tendency to distract us from the principal thing, namely the care of our soul. So we watch for the deceitfulness of riches. We watch for the praise of men, which puffs us up because the gospel does the opposite. The gospel brings us down and it tells us that we all spiritually are poor, no matter what wealth or our position we have in this world. He who humbled himself comes into the world ultimately to first humble us that he might exalt us through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. So there's encouragement here. God further shows his own glory in saving people like this. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul tells us of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 through 29? For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, 
for this reason, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Jesus could have come to be born in a palace in Jerusalem, and the angels could have announced it to those who were in civil and ecclesiastical power. But Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in the city of David's origin, and the first announcement is made to shepherds who abode in tents in the field. I want you to think of this this afternoon as we consider ourselves and our place in a community like this. The world elevates and idolizes the rich and powerful. And so people have these ambitions that they might get to the big cities and go live in Manhattan and climb in wealth and significance and and, and social standing. Or or perhaps they have dreams that they might go to, to... Los Angeles and make it and have a house in in the Hollywood Hills. And yet God cares for none of these things. And a simple community like the one that we live in, we go into Burlington and there are places that you might turn your nose up at and you say, oh, we don't like this, we don't like that. God does not think like you. And he says, these are fields that are ripe unto harvest. Go preach the gospel. Go preach the gospel to ordinary people. Go preach the gospel to poor and broken people. Because that is who the Savior of the world came to save. So we have their social standing. But then we also see their sinful condition. I want to emphasize that in case you misunderstand me and think that somehow there is a virtue to being low class or poor. Quite the contrary, especially in the last 200 years or so, there's been immense pride in being poor. So at the end of the 19th century, we have the workers' revolution and all of uh, the rise of socialism and communism and all of the angst and enmity and envy is weighed against those who have wealth. You shouldn't have it. You have to give it all to us. I grew up in a pretty working-class community. I was born into a working-class family. My father worked in the shipyard. My grandfather worked in the shipyard. And I would hear my grandfather speak. And there was this pride in being the working class and this enmity over against those who were wealthy. It has its own pride. But in these verses, we see again that there is one thing that unites all men, whether they are rich or poor, or whether they are bond or free. And it's sin. Now, you might look at the text and say, well, it doesn't say anything about sin. But let me read it to you again and see if you can find out where it is. Verse 9 in particular, And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Children, where is sin in verse 9? Would you know where you find it? Those two little words, sore afraid. Sore afraid. The Greek word sore is mega. 
That's a buzzword today. Things are mega. What do we mean? They're huge. They're big. Well, the angel of the Lord appeared, but not just the angel of the Lord. More than the angel of the Lord, the glory of the Lord shone round about the angel and the shepherds. Can we imagine it? There they are, out on the hills of Bethlehem. And the glory of the Lord appears, and they are quite literally terrified. So afraid. When people today meet great people, maybe the sports star that they've idolized, they become a little bit nervous and uncomfortable, and perhaps they go a little bit giddy. I remember years ago going to the palace with my mother when she was being awarded the MBE, and I can remember that day how my mom was getting dressed and, you know, what was on her mind, and I can still see her walking up to the prince to receive her, her award, and, and she was walking straight up like, upright with a big excited smile upon her face. That's how we tend to react when we meet some great people in the earth. But when the glory of God appeared before the shepherds, they were terrified. Because God is holy and we are sinners. God is so holy that in Isaiah chapter 6, angels who have no sin, angels who are perfectly holy in their angelic created state, fly in the vision that Isaiah sees. They have six wings. And with two wings they cover their faces. And with two wings they cover their feet. And with two wings they fly. And as they fly, they cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Do you see what we're saying? Holy angels who have no sin veil their faces in the presence of an infinitely holy God. And when Isaiah, who's a believer, but he's still a sinner... When he but sees the vision of this, he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. He's saying, I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm unraveling. When I stand in the presence of the vision of this God, the sense of doom comes into my soul. When the pre-incarnate Christ appeared to Daniel, Daniel fell on his face before him. When the incarnate Christ manifested his glory by a miracle, the apostle Peter, one of his nearest and dearest friends, fell down at his feet and said, Depart from me, because I am a sinful man. Here are these shepherds, and their response is very suitable to their condition, because they are sinful men, in the presence of a holy God. The chapter begins, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree of from Caesar Augustus. And we said last week that at this point in history, here is a man who has more power than anybody else who had ever lived up until this point in time. Greater than Pharaoh, greater than Nebuchadnezzar, greater than Cyrus, greater than Alexander the Great. 
And if the glory of God had appeared before Caesar Augustus, he would have responded in exactly the same way. He would have been sore afraid. Do you understand that this afternoon, as you sit under the Word, as the glory of God is preached to you in the Word, that as a sinner, if you come into contact with this awesomely holy God, that you reply with the prophet, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you learned, as the shepherds felt, that as a sinner, you have no other hope but to fear if there is no Savior? Do you know that about yourself? Without Jesus Christ, God is and can only be a terror to you forever. Well, thankfully, there is a Savior, and that is exactly what the angels came to tell these fearing shepherds. And so we consider, secondly, the Savior verse 10 through 12, and the angel said unto them, fear not. What a glorious message to a fearful people. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Fearful shepherds are told by angels on the behalf of God to stop being afraid. Because the messengers bring good news. Good news for you shepherds in Bethlehem. Good news for you people sitting in the congregation here this afternoon. Not only good news, but good news that is going to bring great joy, mega joy to all people. A Savior has just been born for sinners in Bethlehem. A Savior without whom the the, the presence of a holy God could never, ever be comfortable to sinners. Well, let's consider what they go on to say. First of all, the city of the Savior's birth. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We emphasized this last week when we were looking at verse 1 through 7, that the city of David is not Jerusalem, though the Old Testament uses that language for Jerusalem. But the city of David was Bethlehem. Now in verse 1 through 7, Luke is just narrating the history. When we come to verse 11, angels are actually announcing the fact. They call Bethlehem the city of David. And that city is linked to the title that we also discover in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ. In other words, he is Messiah. Because Bethlehem, as the city of David, was the Messianic city. 
And so we are reminded again what we said last time, how everything is working according to plan. Everything God promised is coming to fulfillment perfectly at the right time, at the right place, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you take it right back to Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Who will he be? Well, he'll be from the line of Seth. He'll come from the line of Noah, and then from the line of Shem, and then from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then from the line of Judah, and ultimately from the family of David. Now says the angel, it's that city. It's that city the child will be born in. And then we have all of the other layers of Old Testament prediction and typology, how as God moves through the centuries, he keeps adding on top of what he has already revealed to prepare the church for the coming of the Savior. So there's not just the seed, there's also layers like the sacrificial system that point to the Lamb of God, the priesthood that show us what Jesus is coming to do to die for our salvation. There's Moses who speaks of a king who will come in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And together with these things, there's all kinds of anointings. And the word anointing in Hebrew is Messiah. The word anointed in Greek is Christ. So when you read your Old Testament, you're looking for the places. You're looking for what God's saying in particular. You're looking for the pictures. The angel says today, the anointed one is born. The anointed one is born. And he's born in the city of David. So we've got the city of his birth, and then we have the symbol of his birth, which again is recapped from last week. But in verse 7, we're told, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. We emphasize the obscurity. We're not to think of a tavern or a hotel, but it's very likely that there was no place in a guest room in the place that they went to stay. And so they had to go into the common room where there would have been animals mingling around and, and Jesus as an infant is laid in the same place as the animals fed. Well, that was the record. The angels now give it as a sign to the shepherds. So you're, you're learning here that this was unusual. How will you know you found the child? Well, he's not going to be in the place where you would expect to find a newborn child. You're going to find him with the animals, laid in a manger. And when you see that, you find him. What did we say last time? He was born, and that in a low condition that the eternal Son of the Father so humbled himself and gave us evidence of his humiliation in his birth. I want to take that thought further this afternoon with the help of the church father, Augustine, because he says on this passage of Christ, or he asks, who is he? And he answers it in this way. The word of the Father, by whom all time was created, was made flesh 
and was born in time for us. The maker of man became man that he, the ruler of the stars, might be nourished at his mother's breast. That he who is the bread might hunger. That he who is the fountain might thirst. That he who is the light of life, who neither slumbers nor sleeps, might sleep. That he who is the way might be wearied by the journey. That he who is the truth might be accused by false witnesses. That he, the judge of the living and the dead, might be brought to trial by a mortal judge. That he, justice, might be condemned by the unjust. That he, discipline, might be scourged by whips. That he, the foundation, might be suspended upon a cross. He was made man and the mother whom he himself had made, so that he might exist here for a while, sprung from her who could never and nowhere have existed except through his own mighty power. Go and look for that one. Go and look for the incarnate God, made flesh, born for us into such humiliation. But then we have the salvation in the Savior's birth. The angel says, go, and you'll know him when you find him like this. But understand who he is. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. Not just Christ the Lord, but a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is Messiah, as we've said. He is the Lord, the eternal Lord, in that He is God. The one who will be exalted as God-man to be Lord. King of kings and Lord of lords. The one that the apostles will go to preach after His resurrection and exaltation, that this same Jesus Christ whom you have rejected, God has made Him both Lord and Christ. All those things are true. They manifest the glory of the Redeemer. But when the angel comes to announce it, it's like he places a premium on this title. Unto you is born this day a Savior. This is above all who he is in that sense. He's a savior. He's the one who has come in the fullness of time. When you and I had no strength to save ourselves and he comes to save us. He's the one that the angel has already spoken of when he, he, he spoke to, to Joseph. And Joseph is thinking, how is my, how is my uh, espoused wife pregnant? There's something fishy going on here. And the angel meets him. And the angel says, that child in Mary's womb is off the Holy Spirit. And when that child is born, Joseph, you're going to name him. And you'll call him Jesus. You'll call him Yeshua. Because he will save his people from their sins. Christ is a title. It answers the Old Testament Messiah. But Jesus is a name that describes his work. 
Oh, friends, he comes to save us. Do you know what it is to call his name Jesus? There you were a few moments ago, standing in the presence of a holy God, terrified. What's the answer to that terror, that guilty terror because of your sin? The answer is Jesus, don't you see? The only way the angels can say fear not is because of Jesus. The only way they can proclaim great joy to all people when all the world is given over unto sin is because a Savior has been born. One who saves us from our sins and one who saves us from his own just wrath. A Savior has been born. Is this not good news to your soul today? A message that sinners like us all across the world should flock to Jesus upon hearing? What's your greatest need in life? Children and young people answer that question. What's your greatest need in life? It's that you might be saved from your sins. Not that your life might be made better. Not like the Jew who thought we're terribly persecuted and oppressed by the Romans. Wouldn't it be wonderful if Messiah came and ran the Romans out of town? That wasn't their greatest need. Their greatest need was that they might be saved from their sins. And an infant has just been born. And angels come to say, This infant is God of God and light of light. And he's born in Bethlehem, bound for the cross. And when you go and look for him and find him, wrapped in swaddling bands and laid in a manger, understand that there's infinite glory here. Infinite glory. Never mind the glory that you've just witnessed on the hills. When you find that child... There's greater glory there than anything you ever saw on the hills of Bethlehem. Infinite glory that blinded hearts can never see. Infinite beauty that sinful hearts do not desire. The angels tell of it embodied in a child who's born like an outcast that the world does not appear to have any room for. What can we say of your soul? Oh, you've room enough for the world, maybe. But have you any room for the one who actually made the world? Have you any room for him? You've room for pleasure, as we considered this morning, greedy for sin, running after your lusts to get as much of this world as you can, and no matter how much you get, it cannot satisfy your soul. You've room for pleasure, but you've no room for the fountain of all blessedness, the source of all true pleasure. You've plenty of room for the sin that damns you. But you've no room for the Christ who alone can save you. I direct you to these hills and I ask you to follow the footsteps of these shepherds 
as they be go to behold the glory of God in the face of this infant. Born for the salvation of sinners. The good news is this to you today, and would to God we had thousands and thousands and thousands of people to hear it. A Savior has been born for sinners. But then we have the song. Up until this point in the text, we've met one angel. Verse 10, And the angel said unto him, Verse 9, and the angel of the Lord came upon them. So one angel is speaking, directing the shepherds to go and find the infant Christ. But having announced the glad tidings, something remarkable happens. The rest of heaven can't keep silent. And in verse 13, suddenly, suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The announcement of Messiah is made to lowly shepherds, but the rest of heaven hears it, and it cannot keep silent. And praise erupts among 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands of angels. Glory to God in the highest and to the earth peace. They sing because Christ was born for the glory of God. That's why they sing in the first place. The first words out of their mouths are glory to God in the highest. Let the Lord be magnified. We need to learn from them. We've been emphasizing that the Savior has been born for us, the best news that sinners could ever hear but then we start to get things wrong because we, we start to think of the gospel first in its reference to us and the benefits that we receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. But this tells us that the gospel is not first unto us, that the gospel is first, indeed, from its beginning to its end, unto God. The design of it all. Think of the Apostle Paul, how he opens the gospel up in the book of Romans. And he goes through our plight in sin, our free justification by grace, our life of holiness in this world. And he takes us to glory. And he assures us that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. And then he goes to Romans chapter 11, and he's bringing the section to the close. And what does he say? He says, for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. It's like we don't get a look in. It's all designed for the glory of God. Our salvation, it's all designed that we benefit. It's all designed for the glory of God. And the angels know it, don't you see? It's not the first time they've sang. You read the book of Job, and Job there speaks of creation. 
and, and we're told that when, uh, when God created the, the world, that the morning stars sang together and they shouted for joy. There they are witnessing. There they are witnessing. Something coming from nothing. They praise God. Then that formless void is furnished with everything that now exists. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. The angels of heaven are singing glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. But now they sing again. And they give the highest praise to the Most High for His highest work. Creation itself peels into a relative insignificance when we said it before, the incarnation of the Son of God for the salvation of sinners. This is where you will see the glory of God above all else in the person and work of Christ. And you see, that's true for the angels themselves. If you were able to speak to an angel, children, and, and you were able to ask them, what is the most glorious thing you have ever seen? The angel would tell you the manifestation of the glory of God in the person and work of his incarnate son. God saves for his glory, and the angels love to have it so. Peter tells us that they are beings that look into the things that belong to our salvation because they don't need to be saved. They look into the things that pertain to our salvation, like the picture God gave us. There is the tabernacle. How can we fellowship with God? Sacrifice and death, bloodletting, into the holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And out of the mercy seat, you have the angels. And there they are looking down where the blood was sprinkled upon the mercy seat. What are they doing? They're peering symbolically into the thing that belongs to our salvation. Well, don't you see that's what they've been doing in heaven for, in our terms, thousands of years? They sang at the creation What must they have thought at the fall? And then they hear the first word of the gospel, that a seed will come to save these rebellious sinners from their sin, and they're astounded. Maybe they think to themselves, How, Lord, there were more of us when you made us, and a third of them fell, and there was no salvation for them. But you're going to save men? Well, the seed would become important, wouldn't it? And as God began to reveal all those layers through the Old Testament that we described, the angels are watching. They're listening to the promise. They're observing the history. They're actually involved in the history. God says, there's my people down in Egypt. I will deliver them and I'll send Moses. But it's not just Moses. Angels are involved. 
There's my people, and the Assyrians are coming up to the very walls of Jerusalem. What happens? Angels are involved. 185,000 Assyrians obliterated in one night. And there's my people, and they're in captivity now in Babylon, and angels are involved. They're coming to Daniel. They're revealing glorious things to Daniel. And 15 months and 9 months prior to this, angels are involved. Gabriel goes and speaks to Zacharias. And then again to Mary. But now the time has come, you see. Now the thing is done. The angels have been waiting for our Savior to come into the world so that they might sing like they've never sung before. And they can't hold it in, in verse 13. When that appointed one angel announces to the shepherd all the other angels in heaven, they burst forth in praise. Now here's my question. What about you? If these angels who have no salvation, will burst forth in exuberant praise because God has sent a Savior into the world to save sinful men. How will sinful men respond to the message of this salvation? No wonder the angel says, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be unto all people. Will you sing... Because Christ is born for the glory of God. But there's more. They sing because Christ was born for the good of man. Verse 14. It doesn't leave us out. It just puts it in its proper order. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth peace. Goodwill toward men. Can there be peace between a holy God and sinful man? That was probably the question or part of the experience that the shepherds had when they stood upon those hills. We are about to die. It's very likely they thought like that. We're about to die. Can there be peace between a holy God and sinful men? The answer is yes, but only through Christ. And the coming of Christ reveals this to us that the kindness and love of God has been revealed and his good will toward men. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there are the angels in heaven and they're not just singing Glory to God in the highest. They're rejoicing that such love and kindness and goodwill has been expressed by an infinitely holy God to sinners in all nations. Let God be praised. For Christ has been born for man's good. Which men? Well, verse 10 And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Goodwill toward men. Good news 
for all people. And we're not saying that Jesus Christ came in to die and shed his blood for every individual who ever lived in the history of the world. That wouldn't make any sense because there are multitudes in hell. No, he came to save his people from their sin, and he really does save them. But where do we find this people? In a select nation? In one social group? No. The angel says, this is good news. Wherever you find men in this world, it doesn't matter what color they are, it doesn't matter what gender they are, it doesn't matter how rich they are, it doesn't matter if they're religious or irreligious, pagan or outwardly Christian. Wherever you find men, go and tell them that God has manifested his love and goodwill towards sinners in an unspeakable and remarkable way in the birth of his son, Jesus. We get little glimpses, don't we, as we read the New Testament. The first people that the Savior's birth is announced to are Jewish shepherds on the hillside of Bethlehem. But Matthew chapter 2 tells us of another announcement to Gentile kings in the east, and they're told the same thing. A Savior has been born. Go find him. Go worship him. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, bond and free, all nations, all classes of people, Jesus Christ is freely offered to you in the gospel. But this goodwill that is preached by the angels is ultimately no good to you unless you come. The only thing it will do if you refuse it, is add to your condemnation. What did the shepherds do? Verse 15. And it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. That's the suitable response to this message. Anyone in their right mind, knowing they're a sinner, hearing this, would run immediately as fast as they could to behold this thing that the angel declared. Can you imagine the condemnation of these shepherds if beholding glory of the Lord, and receiving this message, and hearing all heaven saying glory to God in the highest, to the earth peace, goodwill toward men, that the vision disappeared, and they sat down, and they said, well, you know, that was pretty strange. And they sat in the hills for the rest of the night, and did nothing with the message. What would you think of that, children? You think, those shepherds are crazy. You'd be right but they're no more crazy than you. If you sit here today hearing the message of salvation and you do not with haste run immediately to Jesus Christ. Make haste like them. This child is born to save. And coming, praise him. 
that the song of the angels would be our, the song of our hearts. Glory to God in the highest, and to the earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's the word of the Lord to us this afternoon. Glory to God, goodwill to men. Let's stand for prayer. Our Father in heaven, what can we say? What praise can we ever give that is sufficient? The praise of all these angels in heaven continually, together with redeemed saints, a praise that will never end is still too little an offering when we consider the gift that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Lord, give us the feet of the shepherds to make haste to Christ, to behold the glory of God and our only hope in this child wrapped in swaddling bands laid in a manger, and to say to him and of him, my Lord, my God, my only hope, Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, wash me from my sins. Lord, we cry to you this afternoon that you would break our hardened hearts, that we might be found at the foot of this manger in adoring wonder and praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.